And as I'm walking towards the house to recover the body, he bursts out, the shotgun pointed straight at me. I could see in his eyes, he was going to kill me. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Peter Watt has spent time as a soldier articled clerk, prawn trawler, deckhand, builder's labourer, surveyor's chainman, pipe layer, real estate salesman, private investigator, police sergeant, and advisor to the Royal Papua New Guinea Constabulary. He speaks, reads, and writes Vietnamese and pidgin. He now lives in McLean on the Clarence River in northern New South Wales. Fishing in the vast open spaces of outback Queensland are his main interests in life. Peter Watt is also a national best-selling author, and I'm his publisher. Pete, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you, Alex. Pete, let's go back to the beginning. Where and when were you born? I go back to 1949, born in Sydney. But around about the age of five, my father, who was a returned serviceman, was uh, able to get a sharecropping agreement with my uncle Martin Duffy, also a returned serviceman, on the soldier settler blocks at Warrawidgee, west of Griffith in New South Wales. Now. I guess in many senses, two things happened in those very formative years. One was that I had a desire to become a writer. And two, I had a desire to join the Australian Army and serve my country. And they happened in those years. Um, Growing up amongst soldiers, settlers was a historical time because uh, on the farm, the men would work all day and then at nights, or in the late afternoon, they would all get on their tractors or in their utes or in their cars, and they would go to Denny's store. Now, Denny's store was a sly grog shop at the intersection of two main roads. And they would sit around and they would drink in the main bar or the, the front, and the women would sit out the back drinking. It was during that time that I would hear stories, which at that age don't make any sense, but I now know today many of the stories were from four war veterans, men who had served in South Africa in 1900. And of course, our World War I veterans were relatively young men. And of course, the World War II veterans were even younger still. And of course, somehow or other, that impressed on my mind. And as a kid, around about seven or eight years of age, I would work on the farm, driving tractors, ploughing fields, slaughtering sheep, you know, for our meals, uh, hunting rabbits and ducks for our meals as well. So it was a kind of um, grounding today, I suppose, kids that have to be counseled for. Now, the case that I'm being exposed to life and death. So anyway, the thing is that these men I could see, and I'm talking about particularly the World War II veterans, suffered bad, what we call today PTSD. But in those days, they would refer to it as shell shock or battle fatigue. 
and they just had to get on a fly. And I remember one incident when I was with my father and we were stripping the wheat. And in those days, we didn't have bulk grain. It was bag sowers. And the bag sowers were itinerant men, mostly ex-servicemen. And while I was watching them fill the bags, one of them fell on the ground and started screaming and crawling around. And his mates ignored him. And I said to my dad, what's wrong with him? He said, oh, he's just got battle fatigue. And so that was my first exposure to what could happen to men who come back from war. And after a while, he got up and he went back to bag sewing. But then, of course, I didn't realise my father, who was a mid-upper gunner on a B-24 Liberator in the Pacific, Uncle John, who was on um, the HMAS Vampire when it was sunk in the Bay of Bengal. He was on the Hobart when it was torpedoed off Savo Island by the Japanese submarine. And Uncle Martin, who'd served, <clears throat> excuse me, served both in North Africa as an artilleryman and then again, later in Papua New Guinea um, on the Kokoda Track in a place like Buna and Ghana. So these men had been exposed to a terrible lot of war. And strangely enough, my mother, who had served first in the land army, then went into the Women's Royal Australian Auxiliary Air Force and was put on secret codes, top secret codes down at Point Cook. And her sister, her older sisters, one was a dental technician with the Women's Royal Australian Auxiliary Air Force, and her other sister was in stores. So all three sisters served in World War II and they married men who'd served in World War II. And as a result of um, women having an understanding of what their men had gone through, they were able to cope. And I can still remember my dad screaming at nights, you know, about Jap zeros coming in. My uncle John would never sleep in the bed. He would sleep at the edge of the bed just in case his ship was torpedoed again. And these little, little idiosyncrasies were there with these men. But it determined me that being the son of an ex-serviceman, that I too should one day serve my country. And for me, that time came with the Vietnam War, which had rolled around. Uh, so I joined the army on the 25th of March, 1969. I remember reading a Wilbur Smith novel in the bus going down to Kapuka. It was the dark of the sun. That's interesting though, Pete, because you were about 20 years old when you signed up to join this war. No, that was 19. 19, sorry, but you were only 19. So you're signing up for something that's polarizing, but also you have seen the results of conflict and how it's negatively affected some men. And uh, with, I guess, how did you, in your own mind, square that away? Did you go, no, it's my duty, it's my country, we're at war, that's where I've got to be? Or did you have some doubts or second guesses over joining up? I, I think it was a case of you didn't question the politics at that age. In those days, you could sign on for three years or six years. And of course, we had a national serviceman doing two years. So instead of waiting to be called up, you know, you had to be 20 before you were called up. I could see the war was actually coming to an end, even at that age. So I joined at 19, knowing I could be sent overseas as soon as my training was finished. In those days, you could join the army at 17, but could not go overseas. Uh, even at 18, you weren't allowed to go to a war zone. You could only go to a foreign country. I went through Kapuka. And it seems I had an ability for soldiering. So that was to stand me in good stead for later on in my military career because I scored 97.3, which no other soldier going through Kapika had ever done before. Wow. But then they asked me to become an officer. And I knew of officer training that the war would be over before I graduated. So I went into artillery and I joined, um, after my training at North Head, I joined A Field Battery. Now, I mention this because 
in the book coming out, Call of Empire, A-Field Battery were the unit that served in the sedan. And as a result of that, I carried my lanyard on the opposite shoulder to every other artilleryman as a mark of honour for it being the oldest serving unit in the Australian Army. Later, I would join the 1st 19th Royal New South Wales Regiment, the Bushman's Rifles, which was an Army Reserve unit where I was commissioned, and the 1st Battalion carries the colours of the sedan as well. So I'm one of these rare people who has had the honour of being in two units that both served in the Sedan War of 1885. What I love about that, Pete, as well, is obviously it's something when a veteran writes fiction and there's war involved in that fiction, which is the case of uh, many of your books, that people would make the assumption, well, they have this kind of war experience, they can imbue that real-world knowledge into their writing. But then even just the rich historical detail that you have this appreciation for, that that gets its way in there, that's just great. And to know that you had that service background and you feed that into the stories that you're telling of uh, the Sedan and Bull Wars and, as you said, the upcoming book, Call of Empire, that's just uh, that's wonderful. It's nice that former servicemen who have served in combat often write to me and say, you know, it was reading your book, I felt like I was back there again, which wasn't a good thing, but at least you have a grasp of what it's like, the psychology of, you know, being shot at. And strangely enough, uh, as I went through the Army for my three years, I discovered that the units I was in weren't being sent to Vietnam. So eventually, uh, Captain Brooke called me into his office and he said, uh, Gunnar Watt, would you like to join the Australian Army training team Vietnam? Well, at first I thought I was dreaming because that unit won the four Victoria Crosses in Vietnam and were considered in modern parlance to be special forces, you know, where its equivalent was the Green Berets in America, where the American Green Berets are trained in language, culture, tactics and weapons appropriate to small-scale fighting. Now, what it was with the AATDV, they just formulated a new group called MATS, Mobile Army Training Team Sections, to work in Phuc Thuy Province. But it was a tough course. And I remember arriving at Ingleburn Infantry Centre, as it used to be in the old days, and I looked around and I saw the other applicants to join the MAT teams, and they had Korean War ribbons, Malayan ribbons, Borneo ribbons, and most of them had Vietnam ribbons, very experienced corporals and sergeants. And here I was, the youngest ever to be selected. You're coming in the wake of, as you were just referencing there, those VC recipients, for example, we're talking about men like Ray Simpson, Keith Payne, VC, and Keith being a Korean War veteran. They're going to be up against many who have that depth of experience. But you're bringing the youth and enthusiasm, Pete. You know, one of the interesting things I can tell you here about Ray Simpson, while I was with the uh, Holsworthy Artillery Unit, it was the 8th Medium Regiment, I went up for breakfast one morning on a weekend. And I saw this man serving up the uh, eggs as we went through. And I thought, I know this man's face. I've seen it somewhere before. He's only a little fellow, craggy face. I dismissed that. But at the time, I was doing 14 days confined to barracks AWOL. I'd kind of taken a bit of unauthorised leave. <clears throat> as a result, I'd been given confined to barracks for 14 days. So that night, I had to go up behind the sergeant's mess and cut the grass with scissors at night, no torch. And while I was there doing that, I saw the cook from the mess, the what they call the OR's mess, other ranks mess, coming up in his civilian clothes and being greeted at the door by the sergeants. It was Ray Simpson. And to this day, it always amazes me. Here's this man who'd come back from Vietnam to Victoria Cross, and the only job he could get was working in the mess on an army base, serving up the spuds. And uh, yeah, Keith Payne tells similar stories of going back and ended up 
fishing, picking up rubbish for the local council, stuff like that. And that was yeah. a, and that was a real challenge face at the time. Let's go back to your lining up and you're seeing all these older, more experienced guys uh, ready for this selection process. Yeah. So anyway, we registered and we commenced the course. The first part of the course was at Ingleburn and it was different to everything else I'd ever done. It was a case of learning to use um, firepower, you know, mortars, artillery, um, aircraft. I still see my notes where it's got a thing we were advised by the advisors training us saying that if an American aircraft is flying towards you, run like hell at a right angle. It's going to drop <laughs> napalm. And I remember sketching that. I've still got the notebook, you know, me running in a right angle direction. So after we completed that, we were assessed and about a quarter of the, the experienced troops were taken off. They were you know, dismissed on a course because they hadn't passed. So I was kind of surprised I got through stage one. Then there was stage two, and it was a dreaded place called Canungra, which today is a beautiful place with a lot of wonderful houses. But in those days, it was the jungle training centre for the Australian Army. And it was uh, pretty isolated in those days from the Gold Coast. And in the second stage, which was a tough stage, we had to prove our ability in making decisions as advisors, not simply just as um, soldiers, but as a special soldier, special forces. And it was during that time, one of the warrant officers who I really respected had served in Vietnam as a military advisor. He gave me a book. Now, back in the 60s, we used to have sit-ins. And this was called a reading. And it was a reading to Vietnam. It was about its history. And when I read it, I was fascinated that the war, we're probably fighting the wrong war. And when I spoke to him later on, remembering he'd been a, one officer had served in Malaya, Borneo, and Vietnam. I said to him, sir, uh, are we on the right side? And he sort of smiled. He said, I don't think so. He said, you've read that book. You know the history. But under CETO, the Southeast, um, we're committed to help the Americans. So at that stage, I realised that, okay, I'm going off to a war, which is probably not exactly legal or authorised in a sense. And, of course, as history has proven, the North Vietnamese with their southern counterparts, the um, Viet Cong, eventually won that war because they prepared to keep fighting for years and years, and they knew that the West couldn't take the body count. And, of course, in the end, uh, we had the infamous 1975 evacuation of um, Saigon, which today is Ho Chi Minh City. So at the end of the course, and the Army Wife likes to put you in alphabetical order, me being a W, everyone was marched to this office where they told me whether they'd passed or failed. I'm standing second last, no, sorry, last, I was last. And as they marched out, they either give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And it was half of the course weren't uh, qualified. You know, they hadn't um, passed the course. The next bloke in front of me, I thought, well, oh, and the third bloke came in and said, well, one of you two has failed, you know, because he just looked at the list. And I thought, well, it's got to be me. And so the man in front of me went in, he came out with a shocked look on his face. He said, well, it wasn't you. Of course, when I got into the office, I said, no, you've passed the course. At the youngest to be selected, I'd actually been accepted. And to me, that was a great honour because to wear, to get to wear the badge of the Australian Army training team, which was the boomerang, the crossbow, and the word persevere. And persevere has always been my motto. But I didn't get to wear it because I was sent on pre-am leave to go to Vietnam. And when I got back to camp, they said, we've decided to call off sending any more troops to Vietnam. However, there had been a third part to the course, 
we had to go to Adelaide, uh, then to Woodside, which was a um, anti-aircraft uh, unit for the artillery, and also it was the intelligence for Australian intelligence. And then we had to learn Vietnamese. We did a three-week crash course in colloquial Vietnamese. Not enough to go into discussing, say, philosophy, but enough to have a simple conversation. So when that was over, I came back, and that's when they set me on pre-em leave to go to Vietnam. And when I got back to camp, I was bitterly disappointed to find out that no more advisors were being sent. They'd already sent half my course, but then the second half they decided not to send. So my time was coming up, and about six, seven months later, I was discharged from the Army, honourably, uh, for doing my three-year service. And I got out of the Army, I thought, well, what did I learn? Nothing, except how to, how to fight a guerrilla war, how to um, operate the big guns, the artillery, and speak Vietnamese. But that was to change my life because um, jumping from being a Queensland copper for 18 months in the 70s to the New South Wales police starting in 1980. And as a matter of fact, one of my classmates is Colleen York, who we know is a commissioner for the SES in New South Wales. And I can still remember Colleen as a young lady. But anyway, the thing is that um, they did send a form around while I was at the academy at Redfern. This is the uh, pre-Golden days. And it said, does anyone here speak any other languages? So I thought, oh, well, you know, I've got to, I put a, a grasp of Vietnamese language, can read, write and speak it. Didn't think much about it. And at the time I was stationed at Manly in Sydney as a general duties uniformed officer. And I get a phone call from Homicide. They said, uh, Pete, how good you Vietnamese? And I said, well, I'd have to brush up a bit on it. They said, we need you here urgently. So I found myself posted to the Homicide Squad and there I ran into some great people um, who I was later on able to train in Vietnamese language and culture. So I started working with homicide over there on murder investigations. And at the time there was a war raging. We called it the video wars because in the Bankstown, Cabramatta, all that area, there were a lot of Vietnamese uh, video shops and they were normally uh, selling or renting Chinese videos. They'd come out of China and they'd go there and they'd cater to the Vietnamese Chinese community. But the Chinese gangs decided to move in on the Vietnamese gangs. And that brought about a spate of murders, which I was heavily involved in doing the um, investigations. What the homicide said to me, don't let on that you understand what they're saying. And at this stage, I picked up enough to start dreaming in the language. I never thought I'd dream in another foreign language. That's a real telltale sign, yeah. It, it, and, and I could actually get the grasp of what they were saying. So one of the tricks we do is we'd raid a, um, a gang hideout or gang hangout. They'd round up all the uh, gang members, put them in a room, and I'd stand there guarding them. And they'd start talking openly in Vietnamese. And I'd pick up on the fact that such and such needs to contact such and such. And somebody else say, has he been contacting? So they knew that the police were raiding their hangouts. And so I'd pass information back. It might be something like, uh, has anyone contacted... Um, uh, Trung down in Wollongong, and somebody say, what's his phone number or his address? So I pass it on, and we'd then send it down to Wollongong, who then immediately raid that place. So after a few of these raids, the Vietnamese started to suspect that they had informers in their own group. No, it was me, Constable Watt. And for about three months, I got away with this. We were picking up brilliant intelligence. And what happened was that one day we had a raid on a place, brought them all down to the room to do the old trick. Now, this is a trick I've learned from my learning of 
Australian history where Japanese speaking guards would be posted to prisoner war camps and they would listen in on the conversations of the Japanese soldiers. So I didn't invent this. This is something that's been going for years. Anyway, what happened was I was a bit bored and they had all these posters around the walls, in, you know, in Vietnamese of we must go back to Vietnam and free it from the communists, that type of thing, you know, the propaganda posters. So I'm looking at these posters and I'm reading what's on the posters. And one of the Vietnamese said in Vietnamese, shut up. He understands every word we're saying. And I immediately, just reaction, turned to him and he smiled and he said to me in Vietnamese, you understand us. And I thought, well, okay. I answered him, you know, Zarko. I said to him then in Vietnamese, I said, how did you know? And he said, you weren't looking at the posters, you were reading them. I could watch your eyes. And it turned out he'd been a, an intelligence officer in the South Vietnamese Army. And he was very attuned to body language and the things that go on. He later on became one of my um, CIs. I say that because he was killed a few months later. And I can always remember, this is the thing about culture. You also, it's not good enough to understand a language, but you must understand the culture. Now, with the Vietnamese, if they respect you, they will not look you directly in the eyes. They look away. But if they hate you, they'll stare at you straight in the eyes. And I remember one time we'd rounded up a heap of people on, a murder, on murder charges, took them back to the, um, I think it was Cabramatta Police Station, and put them in different rooms. And I sort of stood in the hallway. And some of the young detectives had come out and they'd say, I've got this bloke here and I think I can trust him. He looks me in the eyes and I just shake my head sadly and say, no, he's insulting you. Whereas somebody else would come out and say, this person's really shifty. They won't look me in the eyes. I said, no, they're respecting you. And of course, they learned that on the job because of my understanding of Vietnamese culture and language. Eventually I got sick of this. I was being called out all the time. So I decided to transfer to the country. And so I got myself a job down at a little place called Korowa on the Murray River. And it was there that uh, I ran into guns, people pointing them at me and want to shoot me. And I always remember one incident. I was on duty by myself in the big F-100 truck. And I get a call over the phone that I won't mention his name, but a certain person's gone berserk and he's trying to kill his family. So immediately I drive to the scene. Now I knew this person. He was also a friend. We used to drink at the pub on Friday nights when I was off duty. And he's inside the house. And what happened was that all the neighbours had sort of disappeared because he was also um, very proficient with firearms. And one of my mates who was a Vietnam veteran, he was sort of not far away. And suddenly there's a blast from inside the house. And his wife, who was hiding, said, he's killed himself. And I made the mistake of thinking he had. And as I'm walking towards the house to recover the body, he bursts out with the shotgun pointed straight at me. And the first words he said were, I've got pig shots for pigs. Now, pig shots, for those who don't know it, it's nine big lead balls inside a shotgun cartridge. When it hits you, it's like being hit, hit nine times by a 32 caliber pistol. And he had to drop on me. I couldn't even get to my gun. But I was near the police truck and I've edged back to the door and I immediately reached out and grabbed hold of the Mike, you know, to send a message back. But I knew I couldn't lift it up and start talking because I could see in his eyes he was going to kill me. But at this stage, I got my 38 out. And so I got it level behind the door at him. He's got the shotgun level at me. So I pressed down on the switch, knowing that in Albury, they'll hear the conversation and realise what's going on. So all the time he said, Peter, I'm sorry, we're going to have to kill you. 
Uh, I don't want to, but I'm going to have to kill you. And I'm saying, X, not his real name, X, not a good idea. I said, yeah, we're mates. We drink down the pub together on Friday. I said, I'm sorry. He said, my missus has gone and had sex with my business partner um, and she should be the one that's dead. So anyway, I'm standing there knowing full well that if he fires, it's going to go through the door because there's enough velocity at that range to pepper me with these nine big lead balls. In the meantime, I'm levelling up to shoot him. I figure I'll get in first. But I knew if I fired, I had hollow points and the hollow points would break up in the door, wouldn't reach him. So we kept talking and after a while I said, uh, X, might be an idea to put your gun down, you know, and, and, and get some treatment. You know, you're obviously upset. I don't, know, I, I don't remember all the conversation. I'm thinking about staying alive. But he did. He put his guns down, fell to his knees and started crying. He also had a um, 308 rifle across his shoulders, loaded, ready to go as well. He was prepared for a big standoff. Then they'd heard the conversation, Aubrey. They'd sent out my mate, I'll mention his name, Alan Booth, to support me. And an ex turned to Alan. He said, had you got here first, I wouldn't even hesitate. I would have killed you. But as it was... Being in a country town, I was able to convince my sergeant, we'll take him to Beechworth, where they had a medalist uh, institute. And we took him there, but we did charge him for various firearm offences, but not for threatening us, because this is a small town and it's a case of you kind of have to look at your own justice. And it turned out later on when he got treatment, um, he was as good as gold, but he lost all his firearms. They're all taken off him. He had a firearms prohibition order put against him. So I thought, okay, that's over. Two weeks later, the same thing happens again in another part of the town. I'm with my mate, I mentioned his name, um, Johnny Lee, one of the toughest coppers I've ever worked with. Now, I was with SWAS, Special Weapons and Operations Squad, so I was trained again in house entry and also, um, you know, the usual things SWAS do. And a couple, I did a few operations, I actually got a... Um, newspaper clipping with a photo of me on a SWAS operation when we had to hit this house when this bad guy was in it. Anyway, what it was, a man had tried to shoot his family. Now, we talk about domestic violence today. It was, it's been around for a while. But he was drunk, so he missed them. And, of course, everyone's screaming from the house, which was not far from the police station where I was talking to John, who was off duty. So I knew I had to get down there. Meanwhile, everyone's running away from there, but cops have got to run into it. You know, and you know this guy, and you know he's quite dangerous because he had a bit of a violent background. And he's in the house. He's got the, he's got the edge. And Johnny said to me, I'll give you a hand, mate. So he's raced home because his house was next to the police station, grabbed his 38. We both get down there. And John says to me, well, we're going to have to get him out of the house. Now, in the country, it's not like the city where you've got masses of police turn up. You're on your own and you've got to handle it on your own because you know by the time anyone comes from somewhere, it's going to be about an hour. And in the meantime, he could go berserk, you know, firing away at uh, the public. So John said to me, he said, and he was a senior constable at the time, I was just a constable first class. John said to me, he said, mate, you're in SWAS. It's your job to go in and get him out. <laughs> Good delegation, yeah. Yeah, delegation. So what I'll do, I'll sneak around the side of the house, cutting off from getting out the back, remembering my military training, not my police training, so I decided to leopard crawl into the house. It was very dark. So I'm crawling across the floor and I see him sitting in the couch with his shotgun ready. And we're about uh, five feet away or, you know, a couple of metres away from each other. 
and there's a blood-curdling scream from outside. It's Johnny Lee. He screamed. And so that woke up because he was dozing at the time because he'd had a bit to drink. And he saw me and he's put the shotgun. I remember it hitting me in the face. And I thrust up, got the shotgun out of him. It went off, went through the roof, jumped on him, we had a bit of a struggle, and finally I was able to overcome him. And then handcuffed him and bring him out. So I got outside and here's John. I said, what happened? I heard you scream. He said, I backed into a rose bush and I thought that uh, Y, in this case, or X, Y got round behind me and stabbed me in the back. So it was... No, it just almost got you killed in the process. So anyway, again, with Y, we charged him with many firearm offences. And I was a bit upset because I had to fight for my life in that case. So I went through, and because I'd been trained as a solicitor's article clerk and I'd done my criminal law, so I knew a bit about the criminal law, so we threw the book at him, and the next day we took him before the magistrate. It was an old country magistrate, but no, Clive Worry. Many people in the police would remember that name. A circuit kind of magistrate went round from town to town, and he's looked at the charge sheet, and he said, too many charges. We'll have a little bit of an adjournment. Come back and just tick the main ones. So anyway, why got off pretty lightly. But then we discovered he was making machine guns. He had a machine shop for the bikies. Now, that came out a few months later. So he was a pretty heavy um, dude when it came to the criminal underworld. But that was, again, found out later on. Well, Pete, it's interesting. And just to sort of summarise this journey, you joined the military young with a passion to serve your country and not just that general service. You're keen to go to Vietnam specifically and you try and make the choices to get you there. And because um, just of the timing of when you could join, that doesn't eventuate for you, but you've proven yourself from top soldier in your early training to just learning these um, skill sets to the language, uh, passing that selection process. So you've had a really enriching experience in uniform for the three years you were in there. And then you find yourself and you still are putting your life on the line, so to speak, at home through multiple branches of service, you're in police and we'll get to it later, but you've also, you've driven ambulances. You are currently still a volunteer bush firefighter. So you're very much always putting yourself for community for Australians in the thick of it. And you've told some great anecdotes there of how your military training served you in police life. Just looking back over it now, at the time you discharged from the army, did you wish that you could have continued your service in some way? Was there that, there that option to do that or you were happy to move on and try and find something new? It obviously worked out for you, but I'm just uh, curious how you sort of wrestled with that after the initial enthusiasm you had when joining. Well, one of the things that happened after I left the regular army, I realised that an army in peacetime and we knew we were moving towards a period of peace because a lot of Australians don't realise that from 1950 to 1972, the Australian army never saw a day's peace. First, we had Korea. Then we went into Malaya against the uh, Chinese communists in the uh, emergency. Then we went into Borneo and we fought the Indonesian army. And at the same time, we were sending advisors to Vietnam. So I realised that we had finally reached that peaceful time. Seeing life in the army as a soldier, a digger, you know, and I always remember the songs from that uh, uh, song, Copperhead Road, where the singer says, and they took the white trash first. And strangely enough, because I was a volunteer, all the other guys in my platoon and in the company were all the white trash. You know, the men that Australia had sort of said, well, you're pretty useless. And so they joined the army. And out of my room, there were four in our room. One of the diggers couldn't take the training anymore. He deserted. That left three of us. The other two 
I mentioned their names, Kiwi and um, Sparrow, were great mates. They were on the other side of the room to me. And they were later on to be killed in Vietnam. So my two best mates from Kapuka were killed. Um, caught in an armoured personnel carrier was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. Um, apparently Kiwi was trapped in there, it was burning, and Sparrow didn't hesitate. He rushed in to try and drag him out, and he died as well. So the reality of these white trash, as the, the higher people would like to call it, because remember, all the people who got out of national service would rush off to university to get um, positions. And, but the national serviceman proved to be like his father or grandfather, brilliant soldiers when it came to the training and so on. Anyway, the thing is that I eventually went off to the University of Tasmania for three years after the Queensland Police. I was a bit disillusioned working on the streets of Brisbane because what was going on? And we had a great commissioner at the time, Ray Whitride who's the father of um, ASIO, and he'd served in World War II in bombers in the Pacific, but he was the commissioner of police in Queensland. And there was the infamous case where um, he eventually resigned out of disgust because the Premier J.B. Elke-Peterson was ruling the legal system as well. I was at university at the time when I heard this, and I knew that when I went back to Queensland, I wouldn't be welcome because Ray Whitwright had encouraged police to go off and get further education, you know, a more advanced education. So I ended up graduating in public administration, which I felt was relevant for policing and political science. But in, I did a few other jobs in between, which are in the book, you know, I worked on a prawn trawler and many other jobs. But in 1980, I joined New South Wales Police and they knew about me quitting Queensland and they uh, welcomed me with open arms. They said, you're the sort of person we need, you know, with a bit of education. The experiences, you know, working with homicide on special branch. I was actually the bodyguard to the Vietnamese foreign minister when he was in Australia. And there were some interesting stories there, but too long to tell them. So getting into a country town, more interesting experiences, a few more dangerous situations. It sounds like, you know, I've always said to people, said, you talk about these experiences and people think you're boasting. It's not just boasting, you're just relating, matter of fact, what it is to be a police officer. And I hear people condemning police, I think, yeah, well, 99.9% of them put their life on the line for you. Would you do that for them? I eventually got University of Tasmania. I went through OCTU, Officer Cadet Training Unit, where I graduated as a second lieutenant. And I graduated into Intelligence Corps. And I thought, this is great, you know, um, James Bond and all that. Well, it didn't work out like that. But again, I picked up skills. And then I moved back to the mainland. I then was transferred to infantry as a platoon commander. And that's where I found my great love was with infantry, you know, being with men. And as time went through in the Army Reserve, I moved up the ranks, lieutenant, captain, and I was just on the verge of becoming a major when I was able to go to Papua New Guinea to work up there for two years. Um, and that's where the real action started. How so? It was nothing like policing in Australia. It was more paramilitary operations. And I was given a unit called Fox Unit. And the night before I flew out, my cousin gave me a Playboy magazine. He used to look at the pictures, but I used to read the articles. I am. And <laughs> I'm sticking to that story. I was single at the time anyway. But in that, there was an article about, I think it was called Task Force 44, an infamous group of Papua New Guinea police 
who terrorized villages and settlements when they raided them. When I got to Papua New Guinea, I was hauled up into police headquarters and I was told, you're in charge of Fox Unit, AKA Task 44. So I've got given the advisorship to the same men that were featured in Playboy. And now it's my job to civilize them. And so for the two years I was there, we worked together on raiding settlements, villages. I lost some of my men. Um, we'd come under fire, uh, you know, in ambushes. And I thought to myself, I might have missed Vietnam, but by God, um, this is not like being a cook down at Vang Tao, you know, and, and getting your medals. It was a case of being in action. And my mate, John Wong, who lives down Sydney Way, was a commando in the Australian Army Reserve, and he's also been a national serviceman. Bemoaned the fact he missed Vietnam, so I was able to wrangle a job for him in Papua New Guinea. And we worked very closely together. John's actually half uh, Scottish, half Chinese, stands about six foot two. And at one stage, he was a full body contact karate uh, champion of Australia. Not a man to be messed with. But anyway, so John and I had many interesting experiences where we didn't think we were going to live through them, but we did. After Papua New Guinea, of course, my two year contract was up. I was the only advisor other than the Kiwi advice, would be asked to stay on by the Papua New Guinea government because my unit, Fox unit, was getting results. We reduced crime. Murder went down, rape went down, robbery went down because we were proactive. We would hit these gangs before they could go out and do any uh, mischief. And I was tempted to stay on, but I'd be, I got married at that stage and my wife wasn't keen on living in Papua New Guinea. It was a dangerous place. I mean, even the day I arrived, an expat warrant officer from the Australian Army had been hacked to death out in front of his compound and his wife had been killed as well. And I then had a bit of contact with the Australian High Commission, a certain person whose name I will not reveal. He said, you've got the armed force. See if you can find the people who did this to them. It took me two years, but we tracked down the ones responsible for the murder of the warrant officer. We didn't have to deliver justice because... The crowd, he, his gang had tried to rape a couple of nuns. The crowd didn't like it, so they hacked him to death. But every day we'd have murders, every day. And it got so bad that the police trying to investigate them just couldn't handle them, they had to put priorities on them. Nerve-wracking living there. But I was able to apply a lot of the stuff I'd learned as a military advisor. For example, we'd raid a, a settlement. And because what I'd been trained as a military advisor was look down the toilet pits, you know, the open toilet pits, if there's rope hanging down there, pull it up. And sure enough, just like the VC, they'd learnt they'd had their weapons down there. Because at the time, the uh, BRA, Bougainville Revolutionary Army, was fighting in Bougainville, and the Papua New Guinea soldiers were going over there, a bit disillusioned, coming back and selling their own weapons to the gangs for Pamuk Marys, which is their word for prostitutes, and um, also guns. So my unit of about 15 men was always outgunned, outnumbered, we had to use our brains to have the impact on the gangs that we did. It was hard to explain to people like in Australia what life was like up there. It was living on a frontier, literally. Oh, absolutely. And as you say, it's a, it was really putting your life on the line for that role. And I can see how that military background, both in your younger years and then the follow-up reserve experience you had, really worked into that. And it's an important role and it's difficult work. But that's been something of a theme of your career pete i mean we'll talk i mentioned at the start the variety of jobs that you've had and even 
today in your 70s, you're still a bush volunteer firefighter. And for about 10 years, it was during the fire season, which starts early here around about August. I'd be out almost every second day with the brigade that I'm with, Gulmrat, and we'd be fighting fires. Well, of course, I remember being down in Tasmania fighting the fires down there, and we got on the plane to fly back to New South Wales, and we looked up at the TV screen, and here's a township of Ratfield just north of us, completely engulfed by fire, burnt to the ground. And I looked at my mate, Nick Clark, who was a group captain, and I said, Cobber, I think things are going to be pretty tough. And, of course, that was the beginning for us of the 2019-2020 fires. Yet it hadn't affected down south, not until much later. But we were desperately trying to save our villages and towns up here. And one of the things, we, we couldn't save Nimboida. And to give an example of the courage of volunteers, remember, they've got to give up their lives. We have one remarkable lady, Fiona Staines, and she's a crew leader of one of the trucks. And during the fires at Nimboida, it was a desperate night. I was on that night, but I was down fighting other fires. She and a crew, I'll mention their names because they should be recognised, Lynn Tunbridge, who's a bloke, not a woman, and Keith Ward were her crew. And I got a, a call that two people were badly burnt. So they drove through the flames with falling trees around. I know for a fact, because I saw the cam, there were burning trees falling on them. The fire was around the truck. They've gone in, got these burnt people, and had to go back, come back through it. Sometimes I had to drive over burning trees, but they got them out. No medals for this sort of thing, but this is the courage of volunteers. I know how scary it is because myself and my best mate, Pete Campbell, and a young bloke who was still doing his high school certificate caught in a fire overrun at a place called Fortis Creek about four years ago. And it's terrifying when you think you're going to be burned alive. But we went proactive and still letting the flames get to us. We got out and we burnt back into it and it saved our lives. So it didn't do much good for the side of the truck. But the funny thing is, young Mitch, who was doing his high school certificate at the time, had exams the next day. And we had to get him back before midnight. It was very brave. When we both got out, he and I got out either side of the truck and started burning with the drip torch. And the heat's so intense. You can feel your face going red. The heat's so intense, the radiant heat, that you've got to back off. And we jumped back in the truck when we got our fires lit to burn back into the main body. I remember he got in the back seat and he still got the drip torch in his hand in the back seat, but it had been blown out. And I thought to myself, well, when the fire hits us, let's hopefully the truck blows up and we'll go quickly. But as it was, what we did saved our lives. And the thing was that I told young Mitch that night, don't tell your mum and dad what happened today or your mum will burn your uniform, never let you come out again. Well, he couldn't get back to school the next day for his exams and boast to his mates how he'd survived the fire overrun. <laughs> of course. Unfortunately, his mum and dad found out about his heroic deeds. They weren't angry at me. But on the other hand, Mitch today is a very, he's in the Australian Army and he's in bomb disposal. So he's gone from one bad thing to another. One other key aspect of your professional life, as we've alluded to, of course, is your writing, how that first came about and then the kind of books you've written and your latest book, Call of Empire, which is out the day that this podcast is out. When we went back to the beginning of my days as a kid on the farm driving a tractor, we didn't have electricity, we didn't have um, telephone, but we did have the radio. Back in the 50s, what was popular were radio plays. And as a kid, you'd glue yourself to the radio and you would just love the stories because you had to use your imagination to make things make sense out of what was being said on the sound effects. So as I drive around the paddock ploughing fields as a kid, I'd make up stories in my mind, just like the radio plays. 
that when I began writing, of course, Wilbur Smith was a big influence on me because he wrote about history. And I always had a great love for history. I remember sitting in libraries as a kid and reading um, all the Roman and Greek mythology and every history book I could get my hands on as well. And that led me to Cry of the Curlew. As a kid living on the plains of Western New South Wales, at night, you'd hear the curlews. And I knew they were ghosts because I was only a kid. Later on, found out the Aboriginals, a lot of Aboriginal people believe the same thing. That's kind of led to me where I am, I guess, as a writer. But Call of Empires, I only wish it came out last year because we had COVID. And the funny thing is, it talks about the divisions between the colonies. And it's hard for Australians to imagine today that each colony had its own army and navy. So you could belong to the Army of New South Wales, the Navy of New South Wales. And when the Boer War broke out, they went across as the Army of New South Wales or Queensland or Victoria or Tasmania. And it was during their fighting in, the, uh, in South Africa that we became one army. But I remember reading accounts where New South Wales soldiers refused to take orders from Victorian officers and vice versa because they didn't recognise them as being real soldiers. And yet within 12 months, they would be in the same army. And Call of Empire is set in 1885. It follows one of your recurring, I'm not going to say single character, recurring families. Um, uh, you explore over the course of history, set over the Sudan and Boer Wars, and it explores, yes, it's right up to Australia federating. You write historical fiction. You bring that love of history, that passion of history, as well as that informed background of yourself as a soldier, as a cop, as a fiery, as everything. So there's a lot of a uh, heart to your writing and uh, yeah it's just been it's wonderful that you get to channel all that worldly knowledge into some enjoyable page-turning novels well pete it's been great to chat more on mike about your background learn more about your career over the years how varied and how action-packed it's been and we talk a lot on this podcast about veterans who have whatever their career is in the military and whatever they do in the army or navy or air force and how they take those skills into life after service and you had a relatively short career in the army but those skills were uh, life-changing and life-saving and very enriching for you in your post-military career so it's fascinating to see those lessons you took and how they kind of interwove and uh, yeah learn more about some of the real life on the line frontline emergency services work that you're doing that you're still doing today and as well as that fun fiction outlet up to now call of empire where the steel family face epic adventures and dangerous odds so pete thank you for today's conversation i've really enjoyed it find out more about this podcast at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and join the conversation on social media at life on the line podcast on facebook and instagram and at lotl pod on twitter Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget.